Our second lesson for this Lord's Day is found in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 3, and we will be reading verses 1 through 20. Again, I invite you to turn in your pages of Scripture and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That, that God's unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Well, as we return to our study of Paul's letter to the Romans after a a three-week layoff, we probably need just a brief review. It was in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the apostle set before his readers the crux of his message to everyone who would listen that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that the righteous shall live by faith. But then in the very next verse, Paul began to set before them the reason as to why the gospel must be of this divine origin and nature, for humanity is eternally lost without it. For we are under the judicious wrath of God because of our sin. And what follows from verse 18 in chapter 1 to verse 20 in chapter 3 is a concise but thorough dissertation designed to counter all the objections and defenses that Paul has heard from Jews and Gentiles who do not believe that they stand condemned before God because of their sin. You see, if a person does not have any sense that they are eternally lost from the moment they take their first breath, if a person does not have any idea that they stand condemned before God and will suffer His wrath for their sin, they will never rightly understand the gospel as well as their need for salvation. It will be like the richest man in the world refusing a free life jacket before he climbs the gangway onto the Titanic, operating under the mistaken notion that the ship is unsinkable and he doesn't need one. Because by the time he realizes he needs a life jacket, he will also discover that all of his money, all of his power, all of his influence, everything he has is worthless because there's no one on that sinking ship that will be willing to part with their life jacket in order that his life might be spared. And then it will be too late. And he will perish. So Paul's making the case across these many verses as to why the gospel is altogether necessary, not just for some, but for all, for Jews and Greeks alike. And the first part of his argument is addressed to those who were and are outside the Mosaic law. They stand condemned before God, for even though they were not privileged to receive formally the law of Moses, they were a law unto themselves. That is, they still had an internal sense of right and wrong based upon their spiritual physiology, if we can phrase it. That way, they, they, like every other person who's ever lived, were created in the image of God and imprinted upon their psyche was an ability to discern that some behaviors are good, other behaviors are bad. But even though they could discern basic moral principles, they still did not aspire to the good they knew, nor did they seek after the one whom they innately knew had made them and faithfully provided for them. And rather than turn to God, their Creator, with thanksgiving and gratitude, they turned away from God to idols that they made. They did not seek Him. And they demonstrated the truth of God's earliest pronouncement to Adam. The day that you eat of the tree, you will die. Well, then Paul turns his attention to those who were privileged to have received the law of Moses, the Jews. And he spends the better part of his argument addressing them, 
for they are a stiff-necked, contentious bunch. They are exceedingly argumentative and filled with pride, fully convinced that they've been given a golden ticket because God chose them above all the nations of the earth to receive the law of Moses. Well, to shake their confidence in this, Paul makes the case that their reception of the law does not excuse them, but increases their culpability. They have the clearest idea of what God expects, and yet they are ignoring what the law requires. They know they are to be holy, as God is holy, but they do not live holy lives. While claiming to be experts in the law, they hide their personal failures behind their credentials as stewards of the law. And when Paul proves that having the law is not the same as obeying the law, they then make an appeal to the sign of God's covenantal agreement with Abraham, arguing that that they can take comfort in being circumcised. But Paul makes the case that no external sign can substitute for the spiritual transformation the sign is meant to represent. It was Abram's faith in God that was counted unto him as righteousness. Circumcision was an outward sign that pointed to that inward reality. Abram was counted as righteous, not because he was obedient to the law, for the law had not yet been given, and also not because he was circumcised, for he was justified by God's grace through faith, all of which preceded the sign. In other words, whether Jew or Gentile, everyone is guilty before God. God is no respecter of persons. Well, this brings an objection from the Jews, which is where we begin today in verse 1 of chapter 3. Well, Paul, can you explain then what advantage there is to being a Jew? If having the law is not advantageous, but simply a greater burden... If being circumcised does not count for anything, then it doesn't seem that there is any reason to ever desire being a child of Abraham. It's as though you are arguing that there's no difference to being Jew or Gentile if everyone stands condemned before God. Well, such a question demonstrates the ignorance of those who ask. Because it shows that they do not understand what Paul is saying because he's not saying that there is no difference in terms of privilege. He's saying there's no difference in terms of justification. He's saying that whether you are Jew or Gentile, the only way you are justified, the only way you are declared righteous in God's sight is by means of faith in Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul responds by arguing that to be born a Jew is a great privilege. The question is, then what advantage has the Jew? The answer is much in every way, Paul says. And the chief privilege they have received is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is to say that God revealed himself to them in ways that were unique. 
God did not speak to any other race of people the way that He spoke to the Hebrews through Moses and the prophets. No other race had the privilege of knowing the mind of God on a host of subjects. The rest of the world was operating under spiritual darkness. But the light of Holy Scripture was given exclusively to the Jews. Now this is applicable to our own day and time, is it not? How often do you hear people declare that they simply wish that God would speak to them, and yet many of them have easy access to at least one copy of the Bible, and yet they have not cracked the cover in years. The privilege that Paul is declaring of the Jews They were entrusted with the oracles of God. is magnified 10,000 times over for us. They had only the words of Moses and the prophets and the psalmists and the historians. The world today has that and so much more. We have the very words of the eternal Son of the Father. We have the teaching of the apostles and the creeds of the church and the insight of the reformers. We have access to the best biblical scholarship that there has ever been, as well as the best translations of Scripture that one can imagine, as well as a proliferation of Bibles due to the printing press. And now, with the advent of the Internet and cell phones, people can turn to the very Word of God almost anywhere on the planet, and yet how frequently do people avail themselves of God's wisdom by turning in these pages to seek Him out? God just doesn't speak to me. Wrong. He has spoken, but you've chosen to cover your ears. And that was the same problem associated with the Hebrews. Paul asks the question, what if some were unfaithful? Or to put it another way, what if some disbelieved? Does their disbelief have any negative impact on the faithfulness of God? And Paul offers a resounding answer to such spiritual nonsense. By no means. Quite literally, the phrase is, become not. Or may it never be, is how the New American Standard translates it. We might say perish the thought. God is always true to His character. The attributes of God are not subject to change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our decisions or our behavior do not have any impact on God that would cause Him to change His mind or His will. Because God is God, it is impossible for Him to not be faithful, or not be holy, or not be righteous, or not be omniscient, or not be infinitely loving, or anything else you can imagine. God will be true, even though every other person is a liar. And to illustrate his point, Paul quotes from Psalm 51, verse 4, which recounts the penitent response of King David following his adulterous affair with Bathsheba as well as his conspiracy to murder her husband Uriah and after the prophet Nathan confronted him with the truth of God's word. Now you could not invoke the name of any other Old Testament figure 
that was more revered and beloved than King David. David was described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. He was God's chosen instrument, and it was through David that the future Messiah was promised to come. And yet David, knowing full well the law of God, failed to obey the law. He failed to believe what God said. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not murder. So let's frame that question again. Did David's unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And when David writes against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He is realizing that all of us are moral failures in the sight of God. God is the only one who is truly righteous. And God is the only standard by which all of us are measured. Whatever pronouncement God makes against us is entirely justified. And His judgments are entirely on target because we are all sinners from the moment of our conception. But this raises another question. Or perhaps a defensive strategy on the part of those who want to justify themselves. David's sin, for example, was a stark contrast to the righteousness of God. So, could we not say that turns out to be a good thing? In other words, if our horrible sinfulness serves as a black canvas on which the brilliance of God's holiness and glory is, is displayed and magnified, then why should God punish us? It kind of seems like a good thing. In fact, it seems like God should not punish us if our sin helps to magnify His glory. And this, Paul says, is the kind of human reasoning he has had to endure. I speak in a human way, he says. In other words, people say the dumbest things. But this is the way in which our depraved thinking works. We turn sin into righteousness and righteousness into sin. And Paul once again declares, by no means... Now, you may want to get used to hearing this phrase because Paul uses it repeatedly in this letter. Perish the thought. Because if that were true, if God is unrighteous to punish us because our sin helps to magnify His glory, please explain how God would ever judge the world, which the Jews are quick to affirm God will do one day. But then Paul goes one better. He extends that faulty train of thought to its logical but extreme conclusion. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not surrender to my sinful nature, knowing that in the end, God will be all the more glorified? And this, he says, is the nonsense that some accuse him of teaching. What does he mean by that? Simply this. 
when the pure grace of God is clearly expressed to those who believe that justification rests upon personal righteousness, what they hear in the gospel is lawlessness or antinomianism. They hear, it doesn't matter how you live, you'll be saved in spite of your sin. Paul is saying that this was the charge that was sometimes leveled against him. Opponents were mischaracterizing his preaching, telling others that what he was saying was, you are saved by grace, so go ahead and do whatever you want. Doesn't matter how you live. In the end, God will save you, and he will gain all the glory. Paul is saying nothing of the sort, as we shall see when we get deeper into this letter. But this issue, Paul will reiterate once again in chapter 6, which tells us that it was a charge that constantly dogged his preaching. By the same token, Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that if your preaching does not suffer from charges of antinomianism, you probably aren't doing it right. And what he means by that is that the presentation of the gospel must be thoroughly saturated with the grace of God and people should clearly understand that God justifies us not based upon our work, but based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And that justification is irreversible. It is a judicious declaration that God makes and God does not make it and then rescind it because of any future failure on our part. God does not subject His elect to double jeopardy. We do not have to work in order to keep our justification status. But there are those who, when they hear such an emphasis upon the grace of God, assume that we are making an argument against living a life of personal holiness. Paul's opponents were misunderstanding, perhaps intentionally, even willfully, Paul's argument for how God justifies us in his sight. And Paul has no time for these who engage in this kind of character assassination and theological mischaracterization. He he declares that their condemnation is just, which is a nice way of saying they're all going to hell. To misrepresent the gospel is a grievous sin. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. To declare that this gospel is something else. To attempt to confuse people with some kind of spiritual three-card monte is to make God out to be the liar. Perish the thought. Let God be true, though every person be a liar. And so the question then arises, then what shall we conclude? In regards to the Jews, what is the advantage? Now Paul remarked in verses 1 and 2 that the Jews had a tremendous advantage. But here he declares, none at all. Is he contradicting himself? No. Because the topic, the context has changed. 
In the first instance, the question asked had to do with the privileges that Jews had over Gentiles, and they had many. When we get to chapter 9, Paul offers even a longer list of advantages that the Jews were afforded. But now the question asked has to do with justification before God. And in that sense, in that case, in that context, it does not matter if you are Jew or Gentile. To be set right before the bar of God's judgment requires the same thing. A complete faith in Jesus Christ that does not rely upon anything that we have done because Jew and Gentile are both sinners. God does not justify us based on anything inherent in either one. We are all equally guilty before Him. And as Paul says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And to substantiate this claim, Paul begins to quote liberally from the Scriptures, pointing out that the argument that he's making is not new news, but that this is what God has been saying for a very long time. Paul quotes from Psalm 14, which we read a moment ago. Psalm 5. Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. And he does this to show that all he's been saying since chapter 1, verse 18 is exactly right. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one whose thinking is unaffected by sin. There is no one who is seeking after God. Everyone has veered away from God and gone their own way. There is no one who does good. We are thoroughly wicked. We are like a grave at its nastiest best with a foul stench that causes you to wretch involuntarily. When we speak, we do not speak the truth. We manipulate the facts in order to deceive. We engage in practices that cost lives and lead to ruin and misery. And we do not have a clue as to how to find true peace. And worst of all, we do not fear God. And the psalmist is not speaking here of an absence of reverence for God. He is saying that men do not possess a terror of God. There are some things that should absolutely terrorize you. Jumping out of an airplane without a parachute should scare the dickens out of you. Jumping out of an airplane with a parachute over the middle of the Pacific Ocean should scare the dickens out of you. And standing before the bar of God's judgment seat relying upon your own spiritual accomplishments should cause you to faint in terror. Because what Paul has just rehearsed is God's assessment of the spiritual state of the world. Universal unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is why the proclamation of the gospel is critical. 
People are perishing every day and they have not understood what God has done in Christ on their behalf. They have not understood that it is possible to be justified in the sight of God through faith in Christ. They've been deceived into thinking that the law was given to somehow save them when in fact it was given to make them aware of their sin as well as their weakness and inability to keep the law. It was given to raise their awareness that someone else would have to save them. A messianic figure who would come from the line of David who could do what they could not do. But those who continue to reject the gospel of Christ, who attempt to make themselves righteous by the law, will one day find themselves terrorized in the presence of God. For in that moment, the scales will fall from their eyes. And in an instant, they will see the depth of their own depravity. For the brilliance of God's glory will illuminate every single sin, every single trespass, every single fault and spiritual debt, and their mouths will be stopped. And the whole world will be held accountable. Not a single person by the law will be justified in his sight. And this is why Paul has taken so much time to set before his readers the case for our universal unrighteousness. For until we understand this, the need for Christ will never occur to me. If I'm not terrorized by the thought that I will spend eternity in hell, I will never rejoice in a salvation that is freely offered to me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Beloved, let me ask you, has God opened your eyes to the depth of your own depravity? Or do you still have the opinion that you're not really that sinful? Because if that be the case, then you need to ask Him to open your eyes to see yourself as He does. For once that happens, you will run to Him and to the salvation that he offers in Christ. Let me invite you to bow your heads and pray with me for a moment.